Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the possibility of a peace deal to end the war in Ukraine, now that Zelensky is signalling that the Russians are more realistic in their demands, and Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said, quote, some formulations for an agreement are near completion, with neutral status for Kyiv under serious consideration. Joining us is Emma Ashford, a resident fellow at the New America Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. With expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe, her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. And we will discuss the similarities of the war in Ukraine to Stalin's war against Finland and the need for a peace broker to make sure that a Russian ceasefire is not used to resupply and rearm, then resume fighting. Then, with President Biden saying today that he thinks Putin is a war criminal, we'll speak with Michael Newton, Professor of Law and Political Science at Vanderbilt Law School, specializing in terrorism, accountability, transnational justice, and conduct of hostilities issues. An authority on the law of armed conflict, he served in the United States Army for more than 21 years and served as a senior advisor to the Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues in the United States Department of State from January 1999 to August of 2002, during which he negotiated the elements of crimes for the International Criminal Court. We will discuss his article at CNN, Russian invaders are crossing a line. Then finally, we'll examine the possibility of chemical and biological weapons being used by the Russians in Ukraine and speak with Gregory Koblenz, a professor and director of the Masters in Biodefense and PhD in Biodefense at the Shah School of Public Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he's also an associate faculty at the Center for Security Policy Studies a member of the Scientist Working Group on Chemical and Biological Weapons at the Center for Arms Control. He's the author of Living Weapons, Biological Warfare, and International Security. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow with the New America Engagement Initiative in the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. With expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe, her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Emma Ashford. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov has said that Russia and Ukraine are close to agreeing 
on a neutral status for Ukraine. It does feel like maybe there is a ceasefire in the offing coming soon. Ukraine's President Zelensky hinted at similarly saying that the negotiations now are getting more realistic, meaning, of course, the maximalist demands of the Russians are not being uh, enforced or demanded, uh, so maybe they're interested in compromise. What's your sense of where we might be heading in terms of a ceasefire and a peace agreement? I think we are in a better place than we have been um, certainly for the last few weeks in terms of the potential for a ceasefire or a peace deal. Um, we have seen, as you say, the Ukrainians say the Russians are now more realistic in their demands. Both sides appear to be talking about specifics rather than just generalities. Um, and, and that is good. That That is that is a very good development. Um, but I, I will say sort of we should also be cautious. And I'll give two caveats here. Um, one is that that in some ways the question of neutrality is almost the easiest issue to resolve. There are some other really thorny issues, including, you know, what territory Ukraine might be willing to give up. To, to Russia, including Crimea, these eastern territories in eastern Ukraine. Um, and then there's the additional question of whether Russia is truly serious about a peace deal or a ceasefire for the long term, or whether this may be, um, in effect, an opportunity for Russia to resupply, rearm, collect its forces. So, um, you know, I'm pleased with the progress we've seen, but I, I, I do think we should be cautious um, in, in viewing this as, as necessarily uh, an off-ramp opening. So is there a way, though, to bring in an, a neutral third party, like a referee, like a UN referee or somebody, to guarantee that this is a serious peace deal and that the Russians aren't using it as a, as a ruse to rearm and resupply. This is one of the big problems with this this conflict, and and even before the war started, is that there are no obvious neutral parties here. Um, you know, the OSCE, which has long performed this kind of role in the European space, um, the Russians no longer regard it as a, a neutral mediator um, that that could be useful in this kind of circumstance. And so that's a problem. Um, the United Nations is a possibility, but again, you know, the U.S. is viewed as sort of a third party to this conflict. The Russians are viewed as such. The Chinese are sort of backing the Russians in some ways. Um, there, there are not many obvious parties out there. So I think while we might be able to get something, you know, a, a peace deal that was in some way adjudicated through the United Nations at the end of the day, I don't think there's an obvious body to go to for enforcement in the way that you're talking about. So if this is serious, and there are indications that there may be, you know, we know that Russia is not doing well in this war and that Ukraine is doing much far greater than anybody expected. Obviously, though, they've got a lot of Russian forces on their territory and their main capital is surrounded and looks like they're going to lose Mariupol down on the Sea of Azov, giving the Russians a corridor between their Donetsk uh, so-called republics through to Crimea, which is something that they clearly want. So in terms of bargaining away territory, the Ukrainians, from the maximalist demands that we've learned, not so much from the negotiations, but from Peskov, Putin's spokesperson, pretty much are, Ukraine has to become neutral, non-aligned, and they've got to give up the Donbass and also 
Crimea, etc. But my sense is that what Putin is more afraid of than NATO, he's used NATO expansion as in many ways an excuse for this aggression, but he's more worried about Ukraine joining the EU and having a, a flourishing democracy on his doorstep with the rule of law and people enjoying their life and have a high standard of living than people living across the border in Russia who live in a kleptocracy where Putin and his cronies are stealing them blind and giving them bread and circuses and wars and other things to distract them from the reality of this kleptocracy. So I would find it hard to believe then that you could have a neutral state of Ukraine without membership in the EU. So how do you think that the Ukrainians are going to navigate this if this is what's going on now? So I think this is one of the big unknowns here is um, we do not know necessarily how the Russians are conceptualizing neutrality. Um, there's been a, a lot of talk about prior models for neutrality. Um, you know, Switzerland, Austria, Finland, Sweden, um, and, and they all offer slightly different versions of the same thing, um, which is a state that is armed in and of itself, um, but doesn't join other military blocs and retains its own domestic sovereignty and political arrangements. Um, now, some of those states are members of the European Union. Um, others have specialized trade deals with the European Union. Um, and so you could see um, a situation in which the Russians genuinely are mostly concerned about the military dimensions of Ukraine moving west um, and where this sort of neutrality deal that prohibits Ukraine from cooperating with NATO militarily, that that would be enough and would allow Ukraine either to join the EU or to have some of one of these specialized trade deals. Um, but I, I think at this point, we just don't know if the Russians are willing to accept that or not. That is the kind of thing that I think these negotiations are going to have to pick through very slowly over the next few weeks. Um, and, and if it turns out that the Russians are willing to accept a neutrality that allows Ukraine um, to keep its sovereignty, to arm itself and to cooperate economically with the European Union, um, that, that is a pretty good deal for the Ukrainians um, in light of the alternatives, uh, even though it might sound like a bad deal on paper. And again, I'm speaking with Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative at the Skrokoff Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point, with expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. Well, there's no way that the Ukrainians would agree to a deal in which they don't maintain their military because it's their military that's done surprisingly well that's blunted the Russian attacks to the point where the Russians apparently are considering a peace deal. They wouldn't be doing it if the so-called military operation had gone according to plan. Exactly. And again, I think there's this uh, popular misconception that neutrality means disarmament. Um, and that is not true at all. If we look at some of the states in history that have taken neutral status, um, you know, we, we, look at, we look at Finland, we look at Switzerland, they've been armed to the teeth and able to provide for their own defense in specific ways. Um, so 
we we have seen in the last few weeks the Russians backing away from some of the more maximalist positions. So at the start of this conflict, they said they were going to uh, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, right? So a euphemism for regime change. Um, they seem to be backing away from that. The way they're talking about demilitarization now is that they're destroying. Uh, Ukrainian military assets during this campaign, and they're no longer talking about denazification in the same way. So hopefully what this means is the Russians are moderating their position and making it more likely that there's a peace deal both sides can accept. So Emma, in terms of examples in history, this is beginning to look a lot like Stalin's attack on Finland in 1939, where his generals told him it would be a cakewalk, and they got surprisingly bogged down with, again, surprised by the ferocity and military capabilities of the Finns who fought them to a draw. They eventually had to had to make a deal with Stalin and uh, they lost a little bit of territory, but they maintained their independence. And of course, Stalin attacked them because he, it's the same excuse that Putin's using in many ways, or at least his mental justification, if that's the right way to put it, that he believes in the greater Russia, while Stalin believed that Finland was always a part of Russia, so he was just reclaiming territory, which is pretty much what Putin is arguing here. So there seems to be some similarities. Would you agree? I think, yeah, the, the Winter War in, in the 1940s uh, against Finland is actually a pretty good example to think of. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I, I like it as uh, an example to think about today is because the, the Finns didn't win the war. Not per se. They they didn't come out with an absolute victory. Um, they did, as you say, they had to give up some territory. They had to accept neutrality. So it wasn't an absolute win. Um, but nonetheless, it is a good example where, you know, this very courageous defense that did much better than many observers from the outside anticipated, nonetheless allowed them to preserve the core things that were important to them. Their internal political system, um, their, their state sovereignty and ability to remain independent of the Soviet Union. Um, and so, again, I think that the contours of that war and how it ended could provide us a roadmap for how this conflict might end. Um, you know, a Ukraine that is that is in a place that is different than it might have hoped, you know, before this war started. Um, but it's not a Ukraine that's been entirely subjugated by Russia. And the Russians have not achieved um, their most ambitious goals in this conflict. So you had a recent article at Foreign Affairs, Emma Ashford, how the war in Ukraine could get much worse, Russia and the West risk falling into a deadly spiral. Where do we stand in that terms of that concern? You know, obviously, President Biden's coming under increasing pressure from the hawks, shall we say. And of course, the American people are watching this horrible images of innocent Ukrainian civilians being slaughtered. And that probably puts pressure on on Biden, you know, you've got to do something. And of course, Biden's hands are tied because he doesn't want to escalate things into a nuclear war and World War Three. And they've made that clear. And Putin has done some nuclear saber rattling to the point where traditional deterrence and the doctrine of mutually assured destruction doesn't necessarily work because he's using, Putin's using the fear on the part of the West that things could spiral out of control into a nuclear war. He's using that as leverage to pursue what he's doing, isn't he? 
I mean, we have to go back and think about these things in terms of how we thought about them during the Cold War. There's a reason why the superpowers um, avoided direct confrontations with one another in Europe after the 1950s. Um, you know, we see this series of crises early in the Cold War, that the Berlin crisis, the airlift, you know, then the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Bay of Pigs. Um, and after that point, the superpowers start to mostly fight one another through proxy wars. Vietnam, Afghanistan. Um, and those things were still dangerous and deadly and, and disastrous for, for millions of people, um, but they didn't have quite the same escalation risk to, to, to great power war and to nuclear war. And so I think it's it's important to remember that, that what we are playing with today in Ukraine, what we are seeing today in Ukraine is a very dangerous situation in the middle of Europe that could quite easily, through a miscalculation, escalate to a broader war between Russia and NATO. Um, that could at some point go nuclear, but even if it stayed conventional would be extremely damaging. And I am extremely pleased to see that President Biden has been very firm on this line, that there won't be a no-fly zone, which would military action against Russia, um, that we won't be taking specific military steps in Ukraine, you know, that we've done, we're doing many, many things for them, arming them, funding them, the Ukrainians, um, sanctioning Russia, but we're not willing to take that last step to direct conflict. Um, and I think, you know, he is very aware of the escalation risks that that could bring. And I think we have to be aware of those risks too. So where do you think things are now? I mean, the Russians did fire some missiles at a base, a Ukrainian base, where I think where they were gathering volunteers, foreign volunteers were arriving. 35 were killed just 12 miles from the Polish border. That certainly seems to have rattled NATO a little bit, hasn't it? That's pretty close. Yeah, that's incredibly close. And, um, you know, as, as anybody who's read history knows, um, many wars do not start through the choice of a leader, right? You know, Putin chose to invade Ukraine, right? There's an example. But in many cases, wars start through misperceptions, misunderstandings, um, a bomb strike that goes to the wrong place and lands inside the border of a country or kills troops it wasn't meant to kill. Um, and these things can escalate into broader conflict. And so, you know, again, I think this is this is not a reason to stop the support that we're doing to Ukraine right now. Um, but it is a reason to both be cautious about further escalation and thinking about what else we might be doing and whether that might cause more escalation. Um, and I think it's also a good reason for us all to be looking for a way to wind this conflict down as quickly as possible. Um, a conflict like this that drags on for months or years, um, that would be far worse um, in terms of escalation risks than a conflict that we manage to find a ceasefire or a peace deal for in the next week, in the coming weeks or months. And indeed, I just spoke with a, a Russian military analyst, uh, Dr. Pavel Felgenhau, a few days ago in Moscow. Uh, and he was telling us how amazingly well the Ukrainian army was doing, and he, and he thought that the war would continue into the fall. And I said, you mean in the form of, of a guerrilla war? He said, no, the Ukrainian army would still be intact. So the idea that this war could go on into the fall uh, reinforces what you just said, the dangers attendant with that. So just in closing then, it would seem that there's lots of reasons why Russia might want to make a peace deal here. They can't occupy this country. These people are furious 
and the army is largely intact. So they would have more than a guerrilla war on their hands. You know, the Russians really have two choices at this point. Um, One choice is for them to use their superior firepower to effectively grind Ukraine into the dust. But there will be nothing left once they've done that. And as you say, they're not going to be able to occupy or control this territory. It's going to be a huge bleeding ulcer for them going forward. The other option is some kind of peace deal. And I think that is why we're starting to see the Russian side being a little less intransigent, being willing to actually come and talk to the Ukrainians, um, you know, and trying to find, you know, something that they'll get out of this that makes that 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 first option, you know, continuing the war indefinitely less attractive to them. Um, and again, it's it's not a great solution. It's not a pleasant solution. Um, Wars and peace deals often aren't the most pleasant of solutions, but it's the one that would probably avoid more bloodshed in the long run um, and has at least a chance of allowing Ukraine to remain a country, stabilize itself and, and sort of repair the damage of this war. Well, Emma Ashford, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Emma Ashford, who's a resident senior fellow with the New American Engagement Initiative at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point with expertise in the politics of the Middle East, Russia, Europe. Her work focuses on questions of grand strategy, international security, and the future of U.S. foreign policy. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing Biden's remark today that Putin is a war criminal and we'll investigate the mounting evidence of Putin's war crimes in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Newton, Professor of Law and Political Science at Vanderbilt Law School, specializing in terrorism, accountability, transnational justice, and conduct of hostilities issues, an authority on the law of armed conflict. He served in the United States Army for more than 21 years, and served as a senior advisor to the Ambassador-at-Large for War Crimes Issues in the United States Department of State from January 1999 to August of 2002, during which he negotiated the elements of crimes for the International Criminal Court. And he has an article at CNN, Russia's Invaders Are Crossing a Line. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Newton. Thanks, Ian. It's a great time to be here, and I appreciate you carving out the time. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. And then... If Russia were to be charged with war crimes because of what they're doing in Ukraine, the first thing I notice is that neither Russia nor the United States are signatories to the International Criminal Court. So what impact would that have? Well, you're right that uh, ICC jurisdiction is typically based on ratifying the treaty and therefore conveying territoriality, crimes committed on your soil, or nationality, crimes committed by your citizens. Um, several years ago, Ukraine, under Article 12 of the treaty, granted territoriality to the court uh, over crimes committed on its territory. So there's jurisdiction over Russians. Uh, in the meantime, since since this recent act of aggression, you've had 41 other Rome Statute states parties requesting the ICC to get investigated. But that's only one possible forum. Uh, as for the United States, we have clear statutory provisions that allow us to facilitate investigations or to assist prosecutions as needed, uh, that's 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 easily established in U.S. law. Well, as you point out, though, in in uh, your article at CNN, Mike, Russian invaders are crossing a line. That 
The U.S. Senate has not confirmed President Joe Biden's nominee for U.S. Ambassador at Large for Global Criminal Justice, Beth Van Schark. So that should be done right away. Any any um, movement on Capitol Hill on that? Well, good news, actually. I mean, we're all working with the, the, the glimmers of bad news around us in the clouds. Find joy where you can. That article came out, and lo and behold, the United States Senate gave her a voice vote unanimous confirmation uh, last night. So as we sit here today on the 16th of February, we now are of March, I'm sorry, we have a sitting U.S. war crimes ambassador. In my view, way late, uh, and but we're, we're playing catch up. Now we have to organize our allies to do this correctly. So we've just learned, uh, Mike, that a group of Ukrainian citizens queuing up for bread were mowed down by Russian soldiers. Ten were killed. I mean... The documentation of war crimes because of the bravery of war reporters there is pretty extraordinary. And Fox News just lost a couple of reporters and one of their on-camera reporters was also wounded. So what's going on in Ukraine is being pretty heavily documented, isn't it? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I this is a long-standing Russian tactic, of course, to take out journalists. We've seen it in Syria. We've seen it in Chechnya. Um, and so we've got to maintain journalistic freedom and open access. Um, but there's also these private efforts. And the trick is that you have to have a centralized mechanism for coordinating those private efforts and, you know, taking raw footage, but then doing the legal analysis. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence about events. What I'm not seeing so far, at least to my satisfaction, is enough evidence about particular perpetrators, which Russian commander and there's, I think, an awful lot going on behind the scenes as well that wouldn't be public knowledge at this stage. But what we've got to do is focus on particular orders, particular perpetrators. You know, if, if we have camera footage of Russian soldiers murdering civilians in a breadline, I want to see uh, unit insignias, for example. I'd like to see the face of the officer in charge. I'd like to see that kind of stuff where I can begin to pin criminal responsibility beyond a reasonable doubt on a particular person. That's what we want. Well, Anthony Blinken, the uh, Secretary of State, has said that the U.S. is looking into whether or not the Russians are targeting journalists. But you had just said that that is a well-established MO. Is that right? Well, it's, it's a pattern. I mean, you've seen it in, in political terms in Russia itself. You've seen, of course, a crackdown on freedom of the press in Russia itself uh, as a way of controlling the, the, the sum total of the information going to the population. Uh, you've also now begun to see a pattern, an emerging pattern, of, of journalists being wounded, which you saw in Syria as well. And so, you know, this is a problem to be discussed Along the same lines, though, to me, as protection of humanitarian corridors and protection of the civilian population, those are key priorities that have to be raised to the Russian attention. And I think those are areas where we make firm demands. You cannot target civilians in humanitarian corridors, and here's what we will do to try to prevent you from doing that. You cannot intentionally target journalists. You cannot intentionally deprive people of food because intentionally tar targeting the or starving the civilian population, it is, an, is, it is, is in itself a war crime. So those are things, I think, where we have to be very firm in defense of what the actual rule of law requires. 
And of course, there's another horrific incident in Mariupol, which is very much under siege and is likely to fall, and the people are being bombed and starved out there. Apparently, the Russians dropped a bomb on a drama theatre in Mariupol, where there were a number of refugees taking shelter, and that may be one of the worst cases of civilian loss of life. It's still obviously being investigated. So the mayhem continues unabated, and uh, it's happening before our eyes. Have you seen anything like this? Does it remind you of anything? I guess maybe it reminds you of the work that you did in the Balkans, uh, in Kosovo, right? Oh, certainly. Um, in Kosovo, we had daily, and here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see allied officials, if it's not the U.S. ambassador, the German ambassador, high-level leadership, every day, go into the world, go into CNN, go into the Russians diplomatically, playing the footage, and putting them on the, on the operational defensive. Right now, they have the initiative, there's press reports, and then there's a new press report and a new press report and a new piece of footage. And it just becomes this numbing flood of information. I want to make them account for each and every incident and by name. I want to have a name of who ordered that strike. I want to, I want to push them for that and make them explain what they're doing and why. And if they, they, they will predictably, because this is what they do, they will spread propaganda and disinformation. They'll say, oh, that was a military target. And we'll say, we need to have this conversation in public. Why do you say it was a military target? Well, here's why. Here's what the law requires. And we need to really push them hard. Right now, we're observing horrendous human suffering and, and, and yet not doing enough at the moment to build precise criminal cases. That's what I want to see. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Newton, who's a professor of law and political science at Vanderbilt Law School, specializing in terrorism, accountability, transnational justice, and the conduct of hostilities issues, an authority on the law of armed conflict. He served in the United States Army for more than 21 years and served as a senior advisor to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the United States State Department from January 1999 to August of 2002, during which he negotiated the elements of crime for the International Criminal Court. And he has an article at CNN, Russian invaders are crossing a line. So for the benefit of the audience, uh, Mike, can you just briefly explain some of the basic foundations of what war crimes are in terms of the the Geneva Convention of 1949? Because it does seem paradoxical that that there are such things as laws of war, given how brutal warfare is, but they exist and it appears the Russians are violating these laws of war. Well, there's thousands of years history here, and you're right, there is a paradox, but it actually makes a whole lot of common sense when you look at the long arc of history is that you're going to put people into an incredibly humane circumstance that in Western civilization we view as the aberration. You know, we're not the Spartans where we're at war every time. We want citizens to return to their societies. So they're in incredibly inhumane circumstances and must maintain their humanity as autonomous moral actors. That's where the law comes from. It also comes from pragmatism. If you're a prisoner of war, the only thing you have on your side is the law to protect you with the expectation that the other side will do the same to, to your prisoners of war. So there's a lot of pragmatic basis to it. The, the core of the law of war, legal protections, are designed to separate between lawful participants to combat, we call them combatants, and civilians and civilian property. So the, the cardinal rule 
is that we must distinguish at all times and all circumstances, and we can never intentionally attack civilians. So that's circumstantial cases that have to be made of specific intent to target civilians. This is way more than mere negligence. It's way more than just military sloppiness or even incompetence. Um, and that's the cardinal principle from which flow a hundred other specific ticky legal rules. I mean, I'll, give you, I'll just give you one quick example. I have not yet seen a single instance, at least in my observation, where the Russians have warned the civilian population we think this place is being used for military purposes, and we think it's a legal target because of X, Y, Z. We would like to attack it at such and such time. If you're an innocent civilian, you need to leave. That, that obligation, when circumstances permit, is required by the law of war. I haven't seen them do it a single time. And so there's lots of specific instances where we can draw the circumstantial inference that they are intentionally directing attacks against civilians and civilian property. Never mind indiscriminate attacks and, and a, a, a litany of other specific legal rules. Well, during the Syrian uh, war, which still is continuing, of course, but uh, when the Russians entered the Syrian war, shortly thereafter there was a massive exodus of refugees. They were given a humanitarian corridor into Turkey and then on to Europe where they created political problems, led to the growth of far-right parties, and led to Brexit, all of which Putin is perfectly happy with. At the time, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the Sakyur, said that Putin was weaponizing refugees. There seems to be some evidence that that's also in the playbook here in Ukraine, that driving millions of people into these frontline NATO states through humanitarian corridors, even though the Russians have reneged on a lot of the corridors that they've supposedly established. Nevertheless, seems like a strategy, seems like the weaponization of refugees where you denude the country, means if you occupy it, you have less people to police, and you create a burden on your enemy, meaning the NATO frontline states. Do you agree in any way with that scenario, that that's what's happening? Well, you framed it as a political problem of destabilization. I would frame it as a war crime, <laughs> because once you've taken control of territory, uh, the law of occupation straight out of the Fourth Geneva Convention and other, other treaties, I don't want to leave the impression that it's just the Geneva Convention. There's an array of other treaties and customary practice here. Displacing the, forcibly displacing the civilian population is a separate war crime. So where you have incidents that people are doing that, particularly right now, circumstantial evidence to me of that happening in Donetsk, for example, um, that's a war crime. You can't transfer the civilian population. You can't forcibly displace them. Neither can you create conditions of terror. As I said, it's very clear. Creating the, te the, the morale of the civilian population is never a legitimate military target. So if I'm attempting to create terror as a fulcrum, to cause people to displace, that's a war crime. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here that are war crimes, which is why I think we have to be adamant about being careful to document them in precise legal terms, and then we charge the appropriate people. Never mind, of course, the crimes of aggression, which is a completely separate category of offenses. So just in the last few minutes uh, then, Mike, how do you see a war crimes trial emerging out of this? If, as we started out mentioning, that neither the U.S. or Russia are signatories to the International Criminal Court, but Ukraine is, 
this looks as if there may be some peace deal in the making here. So I don't know whether the Russians could bargain away war crimes in the deal that they're trying to make now. Uh, apparently Lavrov has just said that Russia and Ukraine are close to an, agreeing on Ukraine's neutral status. I don't know whether they could somehow bargain away war crimes, but if war crimes were to be brought on the table, who's going to do that and under what kind of jurisdiction or umbrella? Well, we've seen other circumstances. I'm thinking of the Lome Peace Accords uh, in, the, in, in Africa as one example. There are Sierra Leone. There are other examples where people have attempted to do exactly that, grant amnesties, bargain away war crimes in the course of peace negotiations. International law on that is very clear. That is not a viable way of escaping accountability. But the way to think about mechanisms, you ask about where they could be tried, it's a very interconnected structure in modern international law. You'll see, I think, a few cases at the ICC, which are, of course, not able to be bargained away in any peace agreement. I think you'll see a few cases in other countries based on the principles of universal jurisdiction drawn straight from the 1949 Geneva Conventions. Uh, you may see long-term movement towards a specific tribunal set up to do aggression. And if they did set that up, perhaps through the UN General Assembly, which as you saw the other day, very strong majority of states support war crimes accountability in Ukraine. So you could see an effort through the General Assembly focused on aggression, but that could also conceivably include war crimes. I mean, and the, the, the accompanying principle, remember there's no statute of limitations here, and the law extends to all actors acting in their official capacity. There's no carve-outs here. So if you're a Russian commander or a Russian political leader, you should be worried. Well, Mark, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Ah, thank you, Ian, for your time. I really think this is important uh, for the for the population at large to begin to learn about this body of law, because it's 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 a, a critical piece of the way we wage modern warfare. Well, we hope that uh, one that the war ends quickly and that those who have prosecuted war crimes are held to account. And I thank you for joining us, Michael Newton. Thank you. Have a great day. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Newton, who's a professor of law and political science at Vanderbilt Law School, specializing in terrorism, accountability, national, transnational justice, and conduct of hostilities issues, an authority on the law of armed conflict. He served in the United States Army for more than 21 years and served as a senior advisor to the ambassador at large for war crimes issues in the United States Department of State from January, the ni January 1999 to August of 2002, during which he negotiated the elements of crimes for the International Criminal Court. And he has an article at CNN, Russian invaders are crossing a line. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the possibility of chemical and biological weapons being used by Russia in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Gregory Koblenz, who is a professor in the, and director of the Masters in Biodefense and PhD in Biodefense at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he's also associate faculty at the Center for Security Policy Studies, a member of the Scientist Working Group on Chemical and Biological Weapons at the Center for Arms Control. He is the author of Living Weapons, Biological Warfare and International Security. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gregory Koblenz. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what's your sense then of these warnings that are coming from U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Prime Minister of Poland, the British Prime Minister, just about everybody in the NATO alliance is concerned that Russia's accusations of some secret American-Ukrainian bioweapons and chemical lab which is manifestly false, is in fact a tell, as Jake Sullivan said, that the Russians plan a false flag operation to use chemical weapons and then blame it on the Ukrainians. So where does that rumor stand, uh, Gregory? So this is very concerning because these are the same uh, governments that were warning before the invasion of Ukraine that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine, and they were right. So the fact that there have been so many warnings lately and, and so consistently uh, makes me concerned that the, the United States and other governments have you know, reliable intelligence that Russia is planning some kind of false flag operation using chemical or biological weapons that they will blame on Ukraine and then use that as a way to justify uh, either the invasion itself or some sort of escalation in the invasion that uh, the Russians are considering now. Um, I think it's less likely that Russia would actually use chemical or biological weapons directly against Ukraine, either on the battlefield or against civilians. But I certainly think it's plausible that the Kremlin would seek to create a staged fake event that they would then use to um, to blame Ukraine and, and maybe even NATO and use that to further justify the, the actions they're engaged in in Ukraine. But I can't imagine using biological weapons. I mean, there's no way that they discriminate. Uh, Biological weapons kill whoever's in the vicinity, whether they be Russians or Ukrainians. So, and I don't know that the Russians have biodefenses, do they? So that doesn't make any sense militarily. Militarily, it it doesn't make sense. But uh, if Russia is using these weapons, there is a kind of political and psychological impact that they're looking for, uh, not just the the actual effects on on the battlefield, um, you know. But I, I do I do think that you know the use of biological weapons I think is lowest on the the list of um, possibilities. But uh, given how vociferous they've been about these you know alleged sinister activities that the United States has been engaged in in, in Ukraine, um, it, it it's possible they will you know, create a, not actually use biological weapons, but claim that there was an outbreak or epidemic of some sort and, and blame it on Ukraine. Similarly, they could uh, stage an event using a toxic industrial chemical or some other chemical attack uh, that uh, happens in territory that they control uh, that they will then blame on, on Ukraine. So it might not involve an actual, you know, weapon being used, but instead you're creating the illusion that some kind of attack has taken place as a way to uh, score propaganda points that they can use at home to mobilize, you know, public, popular opinion 
in favor of the invasion, uh, which is growing increasingly important because the popular opinion in Russia appears to be you know, not very supportive of this invasion. And in terms of the Russian uh, military, are they equipped with chemical weapons, VX, sarin? I thought the U.S. and the Russians got rid of most of their chemical weapons. I know Russia had a very, very extensive bioweapons program, a secret one, even though they signed the 1975 agreement to ban biological weapons. They kept a massive secret program underway throughout the entire Cold War. Whether that's been shut down or not is also a question. So give us an update on what inventory the Russians have in terms of both bio and chemical weapons. So you're right, Russia has signed both the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological Weapons Convention, so they have pledged not to develop or produce or use chemical or biological weapons. But we also know that Russia inherited the chemical and biological warfare programs of the Soviet Union, which were the world's largest at the time, and we've seen kind of growing evidence that they did not fully dismantle and destroy those programs as they claimed to. And the, the biggest indicator of this was the use of the Novichok nerve agent uh, in the attempt assassination of Sergei Skripal and Alexei Navalny, uh, because this was a nerve agent that was developed by the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which uh, they never admitted to have, uh, Russia never admitted to having it, and yet you know, it was used to, to, in attempted murders of, of two very prominent um, you know, dissidents and, and political rivals, uh, with you know, clear signatures that this came from, uh, came from, from Russia. So we know they have an active chemical weapons program, right? We know they have stocks of some size of these Novichok agents, uh, but uh, you know, beyond that, it, it's it's hard to get information on their exact capabilities. But this is clearly an area that they've invested in. Uh, they have you know upgraded and expanded both their chemical and biological weapons facilities uh, over the years, or even after uh, the end of the Soviet Union. So they're clearly keeping these options available for use if they if they desire to do so. And the Syrians are entering the war. They've been invited in by Putin, 15,000 Syrian fighters. Uh, Syria used chemical weapons. Would those Syrian fighters be a part of their chemical? Would they have chemical weapons? Uh, they certainly might have chemical weapons experience, but could they also bring chemical weapons with them? I think that's pretty unlikely. The Syrian regime use mostly air-delivered chemical weapons, either chlorine-filled barrel bombs or um, binary aerial bombs filled with sarin, uh, and, and those are not capabilities I, I would expect the, the Syrians to, to send to, to fight in, in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, clearly there is a, a long history of Syria using chemical weapons uh, uh, in the Civil War. Russia uh, has, you know, uh, enabled Syria to do that by blocking UN Security Council sanctions and blocking investigations and, and generally spreading disinformation to try and cover up Syria's use. And so we know Syria, uh, Russia has paid close attention to Syria's use of chemical weapons. Uh, and in fact, they've made allegations throughout the Civil War about other types of false flag incidents in Syria involving chemical weapons being used by the opposition, by the United States, by the United Kingdom, uh, and just spinning out disinformation designed to create a smokescreen to distract people from the fact that it's the Syrian government that was using chemical weapons during the Civil War. So Syria has provided a kind of testing ground for some of this disinformation, and I think we're seeing that play out in Ukraine today. 
And again, I'm speaking with Gregory Koblenz, who is a professor and director of the Masters in Biodefense and a PhD in Biodefense at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he's also associate faculty at the Center for Security Policy Studies, a member of the Scientists Working Group on Chemical and Biological Weapons at the Center for Arms Control. He's the author of Living Weapons, Biological Warfare and International Security. So if this siege of of Kiev goes on and there are other cities. Mariupol is on, on the brink of falling to the Russians, which is just hideous bombardments and probably massive civilian casualties there. So there's a lot of evidence of Russian ruthlessness. So what about their military doctrine? How how much do they have a bright line between conventional weapons and weapons of mass destruction? You mentioned earlier the use of WMD on NATO territory, trying to kill the Scripples in Salisbury, the UK, and of course going after Navalny with a chemical weapon. So they've certainly crossed thresholds there. What about their military doctrine? So Putin is certainly ruthless and has shown a willingness to use poisons, not just against uh, Mr. Navalny and Mr. Skripal, but probably at least a dozen other journalists and, and dissidents over, over the years. So that's definitely not in, in question. Um, but the, the use of Novichok, for example, in the, the Navalny and Skripal cases, these were supposed to be clandestine actions, that no one was supposed to know that these people were, were killed by Russia using a, you know, a top-secret Soviet nerve agent. Um, that's one of the, the, I think, the benefits of the statements that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has made and the NATO Secretary General has made, to kind of expose the, the Russian plans for a false flag operation to make it you know, obvious if something does happen with this regard that this is a, a Russian provocation. Um, and, and so by kind of publicizing this, I think that takes away a lot of the, the power this kind of uh, incident could, could have. Uh, in terms of you know, the Russian military, right, they, they say they've you know, gotten rid of their, their chemical weapons, so, um, you know, and, and the stocks that they declared have been destroyed under OPCW supervision. So if these are, you know, their former, you know, chemical warfare units should have been disbanded. Um, they shouldn't be engaged in training or exercises. So um, I, I think it, it would be hard-pressed to launch a, a complex chemical attack, given the fact that they can't even uh, supply their trucks with tires that will stay inflated. Uh, they can't feed their troops. They, they've had all sorts of, you know, horrendous logistical difficulties with their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and I don't think the Russian military would be confident that they would be able to, to pull off a, a complex coordinated chemical attack um, and, and keep that somehow you know, from, from being tied back to Russia directly. So I, I think the Russian military has its handful dealing with the, the, the current Ukrainian resistance and, and the problems that are on the Russian side. Uh, and I, I doubt that the Russian general staff is going to want to add to that by inserting chemical weapons into the environment. So does that mean that the Russian soldiers, or perhaps the ones in the South that seem to be more professional or less draftees, are they equipped, or any, are any Russian units equipped with chemical protections, you know, gas masks and chemical warfare protection outfits? Historically, the, the Soviet military and now the Russian military have invested heavily in defenses against the, the full range of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, biological, and, and chemical weapons. And so they do have special vehicles, they have gas masks, they have 
you know, detectors to warn their troops of any kind of contamination or radiation. Um, but I don't know to what extent those capabilities are deployed into Ukraine right now. Um, I haven't seen any open source reporting on that. And the fact that this, um, uh, you know, this invasion was launched on, on, uh, under the cover of an exercise that these units were, were engaging in means that you know, they might not have you know, deployed with the full complement of support capabilities like CBRN defenses and CBRN detectors if that wasn't part of the exercise. So um, you know, the Russians clearly have a, the capability in general. I just don't know if they've deployed that into um, the Ukraine theater of operations. Well, one of the things that I find really just mind-boggling and so dispiriting about what's happening is that we're talking about Russian propaganda in terms of false flags accusing Ukraine and the U.S. of having a secret bioweapons lab in Ukraine. But this story, as stupid as this it is, is being echoed by none other than the leading commentator on Fox News, Tucker Carlson who's been ranting about this secret U.S. and Ukrainian bioweapons lab, this mythical lab. And he's echoed and replayed on Russian state TV. So it's sort of a propaganda multiplier, a false multiplier for Putin's propaganda. You know, I don't know whether Tucker Carlson is a useful idiot or what's going on there. Can you figure this out, why it is that a major American broadcasting network would allow their most popular anchor person or whatever he is to spread Russian propaganda and then have it then played on Russian TV to bolster Putin's false flag charges? I think there are a couple of things going on here. I mean, first off, uh, for Tucker Carlson to be partial to Russia and to Putin is not new. Uh, this started under the Trump administration, where, you know, as we all know, uh, Donald Trump had a unusually close relationship with Vladimir Putin, and and that has spilled over, I think, into um, the the far right media uh, that is still has a um, you know has respect uh, and, and admiration for Putin, as as some you know uh, senior former Trump officials have have said recently. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think also this ties into the conspiracy theories that have been floating around and that Tucker Carlson has definitely helped promote about the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and to the extent that this was allegedly a nefarious secret plot by China and uh, Anthony Fauci and researchers that developed this, uh, you know, highly contagious virus and then it got out by accident. So this is just another version of that, you know, conspiracy theory where, uh, you know, the U.S. is funding secret research that goes wrong. So I think it fits into that narrative as well. And then finally, you know, as, as people maybe don't remember, uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, uh, second impeachment trial was all about his attempts to strong-arm uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, to, to help um, Trump out with his domestic political problems. And so I think anything that makes Ukraine look bad also has a certain appeal to um, the Tafar media, given their investment in, uh, you know, in, 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 in trying to appeal to Trump supporters. And, and then finally, this is just a sensationalistic story that makes people pay attention. And so I'm sure it brings in viewers and it brings in eyeballs and clicks 
to Fox News, and at the end of the day, they're prior, prioritizing profits over the truth. And, and I think that is uh, an unfortunate reality, but um, uh, I think if the, these, these factors combined that are you know, driving uh, people like Tucker Carlson to promote this stuff and Fox to let them do so. And there are no sanctions against this kind of behavior? I mean, I guess the U.S. is not at war, so you can't charge Tucker Carlson with being Tokyo Rose or Axis Sally, but that's pretty much what he is. I mean, this is a situation where the First Amendment (laughs) protects speech, even if it is wrong or inflammatory. I mean, those protections are in place. You know, I, I think it's it's I think it's you know reputational damage that's being done to Tucker Carlson and and to Fox News, and the extent to which you know these allegations are shown to be you know uh, not just wrong but just you know ridiculously wrong. Um, I, I think that will be remembered, and so um, I, I wouldn't judge kind of the the outcome of this just yet because I think there's there's still more to come, and I think you know it, at the end it's going to be. You know, it, it, it's clear that it's Russia that has chemical and biological weapons, right? It's Russia that invaded Ukraine un, unprovoked. Uh, it's Russia that's committing atrocities in Ukraine. And that is the truth that, you know, Americans, everyone around the world can see. And Tucker Carlson and others can try and lie about it or spin it. But that's the reality. And I, I think eventually that will rally will catch up to people who are um, supporting this kind of disinformation and propaganda. But in the last minute, Gregory, what happens if the false flag operation does happen and Russia uses chemical weapons and blames it on the Ukrainians and Tucker Carlson goes on television and propagates the Russian line? I, I mean, that would, that would be a really um, serious problem. And I think that, you know, if we were talking about you know, journalistic ethics and the responsibility of, you know, a, a media company like, like Fox to you know, uh, provide accurate reporting, I think that would be a, a major, major problem. Um, and, and also, I, I kind of question the competency of the Russians to be able to conduct a false flag that is in any way convincing. Right? We've seen uh, the security services in Russia do a really horrible job trying to, uh, you know, conduct other types of operations. So I'm, uh, you know, if something does happen, which I, I hope it doesn't, um, I, I expect that it will be exposed as a hoax and a fraud pretty quickly by, um, you know, the U.S. and, and related countries and uh, investigative journalists, and that that will serve enough kind of counter evidence that even people like Tucker Carlson won't be comfortable parroting the, the Kremlin's propaganda line. Sure. Well, it's pretty hard to believe that Fox allows him to do what he does, given that they just lost a couple of uh, reporters and one was badly injured in uh, Ukraine. I thank you for joining us, uh, Gregory Koblenz. Thanks for having me. Again, I've been speaking with Gregory Koblenz, who's a professor and director of the Masters in Biodefense and PhD in Biodefense at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, where he's also an associate faculty in the Center for Security Policy Studies, a member of the Scientists Working Group on Chemical and Biological Weapons at the Center for Arms Control. He's the author of Living Weapons, Biological Warfare and International Security. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past